As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, there's still tons of dimensions potentially to explore. So much. With regard to the uh, Silicon Valley bank collapse. But one of the sort of simple questions that a lot of people are asking is, from here on out, do we just assume that every deposit in a bank is insured, even if officially they only promise up to 250 k Yeah, well, I mean, that was kind of the implicit takeaway from the weekend announcement. Mm -hmm. And I know we spoke with Dan Davies, and he made the point that historically, it is rare for depositors in modern financial times to lose a bunch of their money, because normally bondholders and equity holders lose all their money when a bank fails, and some of that gets taken away to pay The deposit holders, because deposits have um, seniority over bonds and equity, but I still think this is a pretty big change. It feels very major, or at a minimum, it feels like the implicit has been made explicit in a way that's before. Because, yeah, maybe in the end, even without any intervention, SVB's depositors may have gotten whole. We don't know that. There was no fire sale or anything like that. They just announced Everyone's getting their money back. Signature bank, too. And then that raises a second question. Well, if depositors are really always implicitly or explicitly guaranteed by the government, what is the point of having like private retail banking, for-profit retail banking? Why not just let everyone have a checking account at the Fed and then you never have to worry about any of this stuff? That's right. So we touched on this a little bit when we spoke to Lev Menand. But if you think about banks as providing an important public function, you know, not only do they provide a safe place for people to actually put their money, but they also create money, you know, in the system. They lubricate the economy with credit, but they also tend to fail uh, sometimes repeatedly, as we're saying. And they also tend to get bailed out, right? Because the argument that you see time and time again is, oh, you can't let this go because it would be bad for the financial system as a whole. You don't want to publish these particular people or this group of people because then, you know, what happens if the little guy is in trouble right. next time. What if it's a farmer's yes. credit union? There's always a farmer at the end. It really <laughs> says something about, I think, people's moral intuition still that like the the thought experiment is like replace Silicon Valley with like Kansas Farmers Bank or something. Right. But it's true 
the point is true that a lot of people like a people can't be expected to do due due diligence like on a bank. That's not realistic. Most professionals can't do that. But B, it's also true that like there are a lot of, quote, innocent people who did not take like some crazy risk, who think they have money. And then the idea that they're told they don't like I mean, the the, the point is like the points are legit. Well, we should get into yes. them. But I, I do think like overall, there is this question of and I, I think we're going to see even more of it. People are still digesting what's happening. Yeah. But there is this question of, OK, if we're going to keep supporting banks in quite dramatic ways, then why let them be private entities yeah. or why not give them, I guess, like a closer relationship with the government in one way or another, whether that's a regulatory function or something else. Right. There's there's all kinds of questions. I think we should get to our guest because Mm -hmm. our guest, I really do believe we have the perfect guest, someone who's been warning about a lot of these exact issues for a long time, has anticipated a lot of these debates that people started having over the weekend. And who also has ideas about rethinking the banking system and what it means when some of these implicit guarantees become explicit. We're going to be speaking with Saule Omarova. She is a professor of law at Cornell. She also had been President Biden's original nominee to head the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Because of her perspective, she came under very sort of like vicious attacks, some by uh, some more moderate Democrats, a lot of attacks by uh, sort of like the community and regional bank lobby and all the Republican senators. It was a pretty awful affair. There was a lot of uh, red baiting, basically accusing Mm. our guest of being a communist very publicly because of wanting to have different thoughts about how the banking system works. But I kind of feel like some vindication over the weekend and people are sort of like rethinking a lot of what she's written about. So, uh, Professor Omarova, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're going to get into all of your thinking about how we can rethink the banking system and so forth. But just like sort of like very simply to start, as an almost regulator, what does the SVB disaster say to you about flaws within the existing regulatory structure of banking? This is exactly the kind of questions that I like to think about or cannot help myself thinking about. So while, of course, there are many immediate reasons for the failure of SVB in particular, there are also this sort of more deeper structural issues here that are on display. The first thing that we've learned is that the systemic risk in the financial system is actually a very complex and dynamic phenomenon. We are used to thinking about systemic risk caused by banks because banks invested in particularly risky assets, which they've done before. This is how we got the 2008 crisis. But in this situation, the assets themselves didn't seem to be quite so risky until the monetary policy tenor changed, right? So what it tells us is that past policy choices actually shape future policy constraints in the in this particular area. Hmm. Another thing that sort of became really obvious here is that There is a lot of political economy involved in bank regulation Mm. and the banking sector in general, right? Just like, Joe, what you said about how the rhetoric changes uh, depending on who's asking for a bailout in a particular situation, right? And our perceptions change when people drag out the farmers, suddenly everybody feels sympathetic 
This time around, it's venture capital industry, Silicon Valley. It's sort of difficult to feel sympathetic, right, to to these billionaires who usually are known for uh, being quite libertarian and kind of not liking the government, generally speaking. But most importantly, and I think that's the point you've been driving at earlier, is that this particular crisis really exposed the public nature of the banking business, the deposit deposit taking, the deposit money, right? And this is precisely what my scholarship has been about for many, many years. Banks are very special animals in our free market economy because they their products are twofold. On the one hand, they create money that we treat as equivalent to sovereign money. So we all basically use deposits as if that was, you know, the U.S. dollars. But of course, there are liabilities of private banks, private firms. And the key about deposits at the bank is that they absolutely must be safe, must be perceived as safe. We need our money to be free of any doubt so that everybody knows that when tomorrow I go to my bank or check my online bank bank account, the money that's been there is going to have its par value no matter what happens. And that is necessary because money is a public good. It is really essential lubricant to all economic transactions. So in effect, public goods like safety and security, national defense, um, you know, safety that we know that if there is a fire, then the fire brigade will come. You don't have to pay for it. Those kinds of things we traditionally perceive as public goods and they're provided publicly and that's fine. But safe money is a public good exactly in the same way because it guarantees us the right to participate in economic exchange without being worried about the value of our money, the means of payment, right? And the funny thing about that particular public good provision is that institutionally, we have this system in which this public good is provided by private profit-making firms, banks. We regulate banks, we charter banks, we try to kind of treat them as if they were franchises of the federal government, purveyors of this public good, but nevertheless, they are doing it through private risk-taking on their own balance sheet. In other words, we've coupled this money creation with their lending functions. Right. So banks create money uh, when they extend loans, right? When they extend loans, they open deposit accounts into which they deposit this newly created purchasing power that didn't exist before. And that is kind of ingenious because it connected the deposit-taking capacity, the money creation capacity, with the sort of the judgment of supposedly kind of on the ground, really attuned to the needs of the economy, private banks that can judge which business, which right. household, and which individual deserves that that kind of allocation of credit. And that creates the elastic currency. This is how we basically have just enough money in the economy to satisfy all the needs of the productive economy, right? And that also creates that monetary policy transmission channel. So that's what connects the Fed, our central bank, to the private banks that extend money, allocate credit, and in the process of doing it, actually expand or or contract the amount of money 
that we treat as sovereign money available in the economy. So it's a very complex system. There's sort of a, a mismatch between the public money good and the private risk taking. But just to play devil's advocate for, for one second, you know, one of the arguments that you do see going around is, OK, the FDIC insures up to $250,000 because the vast majority of people in the U.S. do not have you know, more than $250,000 in their bank accounts. But if you're a company with a lot of cash, presumably you're more sophisticated. Maybe you have a treasury function whose job it is to actually manage that cash. Is there an argument to be made that as the pool of money gets bigger, people should be more attuned to managing Mm. it and making sure it's not going into riskier banks? This is actually a very astute question and kind of the question that is on the minds of many people today. And there is an argument for that. And the argument, one argument would be theoretical argument in a way to say that, look, let's just stop pretending that bank deposit money is not, in fact, public money because it is publicly backed. So let's just dispense with this fiction by removing that that cap so that everybody, wholesale depositors as well as retail depositors, don't really ever have to question and worry. And it would definitely eliminate the incentive to run on a bank by uh, these big money holders who are now able to orchestrate these runs faster than they used to do it before. So it would be a systemic structural fix to this problem of bank runs. The problem that I have with this argument is that, well, in that case, if we completely eliminate the fiction of some kind of private risk management by the banks themselves on the assets and the liability side of its balance sheet by saying, look, you know, all of the important liabilities of banks are, in fact, the federal government's liabilities, then we need to do one of the two things. One thing would be either we need to make sure that these banks really start acting truly as public utilities on the asset side, on the investment side of their balance sheets as well. In other words, we need to make sure that they are not able to abuse this kind of public subsidy, public backing, explicit backing of its li- of their liabilities to make investments that would generate higher private profits for them, but potentially increase the liability for the FDIC that is now direct. Or we need to basically say, well, you know what? We don't really need private banks to intermediate this kind of money creation. Since all the money is public, let's just provide those accounts publicly and deposit accounts publicly. So that this particular public, which is the means of payment, means of exchange, will be provided publicly. Everything else lending, investment services, everything else that does require risk assessment on the ground that is best provided by private firms should be provided by private firms, but we would separate those two functions. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. 
Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask you a question. I mean, your nomination to head the office of the controller of the currency, the, the community banks, the regional banks really were vociferous in lobbying against you. And of course, so now the first crisis that we've seen in the current era happens at a community bank. Like, you know, there is some question setting aside, and I want to get to your thoughts on like Fed accounts and all that. But setting aside that, a lot of people over the weekend, they're like, well, why shouldn't I just have all my money at Chase? Why shouldn't I just have all my mm. money at City? Because, you know, they're, we've been told they're too big to fail. We know they're going to get bailed out. Also, just structurally, they have, they'll have a more diversified depositor base, most likely, so maybe less likely to run. Like, Do you see a positive role in the economy for these community banks that opposed you so much? Well, I, I do. I do see a very important potential role for community banks to play because community banks, just by definition, they are tied to their own communities, right? They are actually the epitome of that, you know, image of a private bank being really aware of what the businesses and the households and individuals in any particular community really need in terms of financing, right? What kind of businesses they engage in, uh, how responsible they are in running their financial affairs, whether or not their ideas are deserving of funding. This is the image that basically underlies and informs our existing hybrid system of banking when we outsource the credit allocation and money creation to local banks. And of course, these huge institutions for $3 trillion in assets institutions like JP Morgan Chase, they cannot possibly be held to the same standard of being aware of what's happening on the ground. So to the extent that community banks are that kind of a bank, we really should promote their existence and support their existence and facilitate their existence. But the problem is structural because it is true that we've made along the way so many policy decisions that effectively reward banks that are large, diversified by virtue of conducting businesses and providing financial services that go farther and farther away from the traditional extension of long-term loans that they hold on their own banking books into, I don't know, investment advisory and investment banking and dealing and trading in various derivatives instruments and so on and so forth, because that is the other side of what we call diversification. That's how you diversify away from the traditional lending business. Of course, that diversification has its own risks, but it also, among other things, makes this big diversified institutions effectively too big to fail because now they have a hand and they play a critical role in so many pockets of the increasingly complex financial system. 
So, of course, it's rational for wholesale depositors to take their deposits out of a smaller community bank or even mid-sized regional bank and put them into JP Morgan or Bank of America simply because you know that for better or for worse, these institutions are not likely to fail. And uh, you don't want to think about the safety of your deposits on a going forward basis. You have too many other things to worry about in your actual business, right? So... Talk to us a little bit more about what can be done about the mismatch between, you know, money as a public good and this private risk taking idea. And specifically, you mentioned the political economy earlier, and we've been talking a little bit about your own experience with politicians. But what what can be done and what is realistic from a political perspective? Well, what is realistic from a political perspective is a very difficult thing to predict, right? Because politics is fickle. Mm. And it's also very difficult to see which political lobbying groups, which political interests are, are currently pushing for what and you know how that balance of power is playing out in a moment when everybody's so nervous about potential further fallout from this particular situation. So leaving that aside, what can be done, right? It's inherently extremely difficult to find the right balance between the public interest in having safe money produced by banks on the one hand and the bank's own quite legitimate interest in being privately profitable on the on the other hand historically we've had this approach where we try to limit for example the activities and investments of what banks could do so banks under the Glass-Steagall Act even even before that under the the uh, National Banking Act for example were explicitly prohibited from engaging in a variety of activities outside the traditional lending but then you know, long story short, gradually we've allowed these banks, even though they may be limited in what kind of risks they can undertake, to affiliate with securities firms whose business it is to take a lot of risks by trading and dealing in capital markets and derivatives markets and various other markets. Basically, their business is to assess and take on various risks that their clients want to take on or to buy or sell. So, for example, if we want to really sever the kind of private risk creation by virtue of certain types of incentives, certain types of activities that banks undertake and keep their deposit-taking money creation function, then we would have to make these banks, instead of kind of almost universal, diversified financial services providers, purely payments providers, providers of this particular public good, public utility, safe deposits, safe money. We have to limit the kinds of activities they can undertake. We have to limit the kinds of affiliations they can have so as to limit their incentives to create further risks and to abuse that that specific public subsidy. And that, of course, immediately brings back the ghost of the Glass-Steagall Act, right? And we know that Glass-Steagall Act was repealed in 1999 precisely because it was supposedly stifling competition or stifling innovation and all of these things. And we are now in an era where stifling innovation is a really, really bad label. And everybody's afraid of being 
being accused of stifling innovation. So personally, I just don't see how completely acknowledging, explicitly acknowledging that the government is going to stand behind all private deposit liabilities of all private banks, no matter what size and what asset side risk profile may be on the one hand, without actually, you know, basically poking at that beast of activity limitations and the ghost of Glass-Steagall, I just don't see how that will happen realistically. So we sort of teased at this, but one of the things you've written about is this idea of, okay, if we're going to separate just sort of core checking and deposits from other banking functions, you know, why not have, let people have a checking account at the Fed? If that's all it takes, there's no risk there. And you've written about that and you've advocated that. And it feels like a lot of people are talking about that these days. And people are talking about CBDCs and the difficulty in dispersing unemployment insurance uh, and PPP money during the crisis also revealed some issues the government has in getting money to households. But I think the difference between your work and a lot of the popular conversation, the popular conversation, it feels like kind of like technical, like almost like inspired by crypto, digital currency, et cetera. And your work and your case feels more explicitly political about changing the balance of power and changing the sort of conduct of banking, not just a not just a technocratic central bank fix. Can you talk about the sort of like impulse that you have or sort of like your vision for what the Fed would offer? Yes, of course. Well, I believe that all finance is inherently political because we're talking about this public-private partnership, right? There is that division of labor between the government that basically has to ensure the safety of all money, uh, as we are learning now, and the private institutions that uh, get to allocate credit. And as we talked earlier, it's extremely difficult to maintain that balance. So it really is a win-win situation. We have that fiction that we can basically manipulate technocratically by, I don't know, capital regulation and various other tools. Technocratically, somehow, always uh, fine-tune that balance so that the private banks can be profitable, but also in the process of being profitable, they could generate this public good for us. My idea for the Fed accounts is really kind of to imagine the world in which we bite the bullet and say, look, instead of constantly trying to keep up with the fast changing environment where private banks constantly keep pushing on that line, right, in favor of their private profit-making capacity. Why don't we just say, look, everybody can open an account, deposit account at the Federal Reserve. Of course, the Federal Reserve then would have to reestablish some form of partnership with private institutions. Let's, let's call them community banks, right? Smaller private institutions that are more likely to adhere to this kind of a public utility model and have them administer the opening and the management of those accounts ah. on behalf of the Fed for all of us. So that, for example, for me, not much will change. I would still go to my Tompkins Trust, which is a community bank where I bank, right? And open my deposit account there, my checking account there. But my checking account would actually have in it the liability not of Tompkins Trust, but the liability directly of the Federal Reserve. Now, if I want to have also a savings account or maybe some kind of a money market account or maybe open a CD for some extra money, that will not be provided by the Fed. Then Tompkins Trust will already have me at the branch, right, or on the phone. And it will have a great 
opportunity to tell me, well, by the way, if you want to have an SCD or some savings account, here it is. We can offer you that particular functionality for a fee, basically the way they do it now. So it will be a great situation for community banks. They would be effectively the agents of the central bank for a fee that the central bank will pay them, manage these kinds of deposit accounts, but also have other services that can they pro- that they can provide to everybody mm-hmm. like this. And their uh, business model would have been under the situation much more stable than it is now when they're basically at the mercy of depositors thinking, well, you know, I'd rather move my money to JP Morgan Chase because that is definitely too big to fail institution. Mm. So that would have been for us how we would basically deal with it. And yet there would be no need for federal deposit insurance anymore because the transactional accounts, those checking accounts in which we hold our deposit money that we use for payments every day would be explicitly directly the federal government's liability. And the federal government doesn't have an incentive to provide that public good, safe money as um, some kind of a private private profit-making opportunity. So that would be the win-win. And we would separate the public money creation from the rest of the private financial and lending activities on the other side. And we'll not have to deal with all these complicated technical matters of making that regulatory system increasingly complex and increasingly unstable because we keep tinkering on the edges. Hmm. Tinkering on the edges is a really good way of putting it. I, I have a very basic question, and I fully admit I haven't read that much about the whole Fed checking account idea, but how do deposit rates work in that scenario and how much differentiation would there be between individual banks under that sort of framework? So this is uh, where there is, of course, a range of design choices. Mm. And uh, in the paper that I wrote, the People's Ledger, my main point was kind of structural to just imagine when this type of a decision is made, what kind of structural implications it will have, and that it's not as scary as people think because they have this sort of image of, oh, big bad government is just going to control all of my money, and that's a bad thing. Of course, that would be a bad thing, but we don't have to design the system that way. So that was the point of of the paper. But to your question, one of the beauties uh, or potential opportunities that creating this type of a Fed account system offers, particularly in the age of CBDC possibilities. In other words, that those Fed accounts will actually be digital money, tokenized money, perhaps, or account-based money, whatever it is, is that then the rates on various deposits can be established in a much more tailored, much more uh, sort of finely managed way, right? depending on a variety of public policy needs by the Fed. So there could be for instance, uh, interest interest paid on all of these Fed accounts, right? And the ability to pay interest could actually be uh, a very much a direct tool of monetary policy for the Fed. Then one might ask a question, should the rates differ for individuals and for companies? Well, they can, if that makes sense. For example, if um, a particular occurrence or particular dynamic in the economy may necessitate, for instance, to channel more liquidity into a particular sector of the economy by maybe increasing the rate on the deposits that's being paid to a particular type of institutional 
institutional depositors, that can be done. Vice versa, if the need is to, for example, in the pandemic, to send more money to certain low-income families, right? That can be done much faster and much more easily. And that's one of those flexibility tools that this type of system would offer. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's potential for an improvement in the transmission of monetary policy. And to the extent that, you know, the average deposit holder doesn't even like get any extra incentive in many cases. We just did an episode about low deposit betas with Joe Abate at Barclays. And you could imagine a much more sensitive as soon as the Fed hikes rates, you start getting more in your savings account. But that would that would clearly hurt NIMS of private banks across the category. So you could see why, even though under your proposal, as you envision, still a role for big banks, still a role for the community banks as branches. I mean, clearly it would change their sort of like funding structure and parts of their profitability. Oh, that's absolutely right. And that is one of the one of the arguments against considering something like Fed accounts, because uh, people say, well, where where are the banks going to get their funding? Because right now they get their funding from cheap deposits, right? Well, we can actually engineer a similar similar way for uh, private lending institutions, banks, we call them banks now, right? To get subsidized, pri- publicly subsidized funding for their loans, pretty much the way they they're getting it even today, right? The the um, discount window type of an arrangement where they could actually extend their loans to creditworthy individuals and businesses and then turn to the Fed and basically discount those loans to the Fed at a preferable rate, at the preferred rate, very, very good rate of interest. This is basically what the Fed has been doing for many decades and what the Fed does every time it sets up this type of liquidity facility that we're seeing set up over the weekend, right? When the banks just basically bring their assets and discount those assets, pledge those assets to the Fed. And so that can be redesigned as a more permanent solution to the uh, funding needs for those lending institutions that really are interested in lending to the real economy. And it would give the Fed the capacity to really fine-tune the credit policy. In other words, the Fed wouldn't wouldn't have to accept at that new discount window, for example, loans to, I don't know, short sellers and speculators out there in capital markets. Not to say that banks cannot then lend to those speculators. It's just when they lend to those speculators for speculative purposes, they would have to fund those loans in capital markets and leave it to the market discipline to figure out whether or not those loans are prudent. But if they want to extend loans to a productive enterprise, to small businesses, medium-sized businesses, or, or large businesses in any community, then they would definitely have access to uh, preferential funding through that kind of a redesigned discount window. In other words, you subsidize on the asset side rather than on the liability side. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market. 
giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you mentioned the Fed facility just then, which allows banks to, you know, tap Fed financing on their bonds at par rather than the market value, because the whole problem here or part of the problem is unrealized losses on things like treasuries and agency mortgage backed securities and things like that. What's the overall impact of that kind of facility on the banking system? How do you see that playing out? Well, this is um, this facility, of course, is a familiar structure, right? The Fed has done it in the 2008 crisis and 2020 pandemic situation. So to the extent that this is uh, at least the third time we're seeing this type of an approach, it is now, in my view, firmly ensconced in everybody's understanding as uh, basically more or less a permanent type of a solution, right? And the question here is that, is it the right thing to do? Is that the right policy choice? And opinions differ. I do think that in the current situation as a kind of market-wide signal to support uh, all the banks who are being hurt by the Fed's own monetary policy, it's it's the right thing to do. But at, at the same time, it's sort of uh, what does it tell us about this whole conventional image, right, of where the, the, the public subsidy ends and the private uh, responsibility for the private risk-taking begins. So we are in a situation where now, you know, people are asking questions, well, how come banks get this type of a liquidity facility? But for example, municipalities, right, or various other more publicly oriented institutions finance institutions, they don't get something permanent of this kind. And this is where we get into this more complex and deeper issues of structural change, right? If the Fed really is the only balance sheet in this economy that is already standing to absorb all the risks on various assets, but it makes certain choices whose risks on what assets it is willing to absorb, then this question of what that choice entails and who should be making that choice becomes a political question. You know, it really feels to me, just sort of big picture, it really feels to me like the events of SVB have opened the sort of Overton window a lot. I mean, we're having this conversation. Uh, you and many other academics and the CBDC conversation has been going on for a while, but suddenly it feels more mainstream because this tension that you've been talking about for years 
private profit in banking with this sort of like utility function that everyone expects. And you did see all these VCs are like, well, if we did, come on, no one really thinks we're lending money to banks when we have a deposit. And I think they kind of have a point. Nobody thinks that. And so why do we still pretend that that's part of the structure? But it definitely feel like this blew the conversation wide out into the open. So what do you think like happens now? I mean, like it's hard to predict the future and obviously politics etc. But like, what would you look for in sort of the, I don't know, coming months in terms of like where this conversation goes, where you expect to see regulatory changes and sort of like how you're, what you're watching to see how it unfolds? I am hopeful that this conversation about finally, you know, cutting that cord, right, between private deposit taking and the public responsibility for what happens in the crisis actually becomes more of an acceptable measure, but I'm not sure it will. Simply because, you know, rationality of doing something is not the only factor that uh, makes it more likely to happen. There are a lot of vested interests, economic and political interests, that will be fighting tooth and nail against it. The banking industry, for one, right? So my worry is that Yes. Yeah, I'm just, I just as a tag on, you know, very minor. I we I would love to have you back on another time to talk about that whole experience of the failed nomination. But you know, just the political, the vehemence of the opposition to you. Curious, like you saw firsthand how powerful that community bank lobby is. That's absolutely right. They're very powerful, and unfortunately, they're too easily manipulated by the Wall Street big bank lobby, in my view, huh. because the real fear from my views, you know, separate the public from private, the real fear uh, was really coming from the big banks because they are the ones who run a lot of risk and take on a lot of risk and generate a lot of risk for all of us on the asset side of their balance sheets. And they knew that people who, like me, advocate for sort of, you know, the return to more kind of public utility type banking or to more public role in banking sector in general would not really hear their point of view really well. But the community banks are extremely powerful and they played their role, unfortunately, in that process. Saleh Omarova, so much thanks for coming on. I, I feel like is the perfect guest for real to like move this conversation forward. Someone who's been thinking about these for a lot longer than a week and a half, like uh, many other people have. Great to get your perspective. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Sally. That was really interesting. From uh, from discount window to Overton window. Has anyone yeah. made that joke yet? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> it does feel, Tracy, like the sort of like glaring contradiction of like, look, we all just want a... <laughs> checking account. We just want to have a place to put our money and not have to think about it. And then the fact that every once in a while our checking account holders blow up and they got the profits or whatever, like it does feel like it's getting harder and harder to accept that that can't be resolved. Right. If it all comes back to the Fed eventually, then why not just go straight there? But I also thought Sally's point about 
tinkering at the edges yeah. of bank regulation was really accurate because it does feel like it's not just that it's also that the very nature of regulation tends to be quite backward looking and so we're always fighting the last crisis and so the result of 2008 was well we have a lot yeah. of new capital and liquidity rule rules that mandate banks hold big buffers of bonds. And now that you know that was fine during a period of relatively low inflation, but fast forward to today there's lots of inflation and now those bonds are somewhat problematic and now we're having to scramble to think of new things when to her point you could just kind of maybe try to strike at the heart of it. But that said, that said, I do think political constraints yeah. Oh, yeah. are real and I cannot even begin to imagine what a, this process i mean you're talking about serious structural reform yeah. that banking would actually look like no that's true you know it's funny you said like how much like regulators always like fight the last war and it is so wild that like a the real like sort of like panic was really on the depositor side which is not something we thought about in 2008 when it was really about the assets mm -hmm. and then the assets that they did have I mean, it was like treasuries and MBS, which they did take a big rate hit on. But it's like going back to like 2008, it's like, oh, cool. The, you know, we never I don't think people conceived of that as like where the location of like a big blow up would have happened because it wasn't like they were like making really egregious loans to startups right. or like, you know, really exotic non-government I mean, backed The irony loans. is they yeah. took money from risky startups yeah. and put it into really safe <laughs> no, things. It's, it's, it really <laughs> inverts everything, right? Like I've, I was trying to think about like, has there ever been another financial crisis or sorry, banking bank that failed because they took money from risky entities and lent <laughs> it to safe ones? Like it really does invert our conception of how these crises happen. Absolutely. Um, but maybe, you know, as we were discussing, maybe that's the peg that that's needed to yeah. really start to think about some of these underlying issues. Because if even that is a problem, then yes. then it seems like we need to start looking for an alternative solution. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Saule Omarova. She's at ST Omarova. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of Bloomberg's podcasts under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts. Tracy and I have a blog and we have a newsletter that comes out every Friday. Go there and sign up. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway and we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast and we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about Money Stuff the podcast. That's right friend of the pod Matt Levine is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host Katie Greifeld to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. 
You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.